Good morning, Alaska, and welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. Well, because I didn't get enough of last uh, last program's guest, I decided to invite her back. Fortunately for me and for you, Jessica Leahy has agreed to return to Line One to continue our conversation about teens and addiction. If you missed last week's program, I would encourage you, or I guess it was two weeks ago, um, I would encourage you to listen to it along with today's episode since we will be building on that conversation. Jessica is the New York Times bestselling author of The Gift of Failure, and her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, is really a must-read for all parents, and especially for those with their own family history of addiction problems. Welcome to the program, Jessica. Thanks for coming back so soon. Thanks for having me back so soon. Absolutely. I was like, she probably won't want to do it again. We just did it. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I found myself thinking about the things we talked about and coming up with, with more questions, and then I thought I'd just throw it out there. So um, I do appreciate it. I know you're busy, but uh, thanks for I coming love back. Talking about, I love, love talking about this stuff, so let's do it. All right. Um, as always, we would love to hear from you, our listeners, so please – Call in or email us today uh, your thoughts or questions. If you have anything you want to ask Jessica after our last show, now is a second chance if you didn't get it on the air with her last time um, to get your question or or perhaps you have something you know from your own life you'd like to share or talk about. Um, feel free and, and please do call in and join us. In Anchorage, our phone number is 550-8433. That's 550-8433. If you're listening outside of Anchorage, our toll-free number is 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to reach us is to email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. All right. Um, for those folks who might be joining us and didn't catch uh, last week's program. Can you talk a little bit just briefly about the title of the book, why you wrote the book, and, and you know, why you sort of, what this project was about for you briefly? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I'm, I have just the best job. I get to write about parenting and uh, education and child welfare for a number of national publications, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. And so I get a lot of emails from people asking me questions about, you know, all of those topics. And so some of the times I'm writing about things that other people are asking me about. But for the most part, I write about the stuff that I'm curious about. And after I wrote The Gift of Failure, um, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I would write next. In the meantime, I was going through the process of coming to terms with my own alcoholism and my own recovery. And after I had about a year of recovery, I started working in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. So I taught there for five years. And in between sort of thinking about my own issues and how I sort of get my arms around recovery, I was also really concerned about my own kids, knowing that they're, they have some sort of genetic predisposition for substance abuse. And at the time, I wasn't sure what that looked like or what that meant. And I also wanted to know how 
did my students end up in this situation? What could we as parents, mentors, teachers, coaches have done differently um, to have made it so that these kids wouldn't have ended up in a rehab classroom? And, you know, in writing, um, the way nonfiction writing works is you have to write a proposal to your editor, to your publisher, to get them sort of interested in the topic as well and show them what the book could look like. So I took a year, really, to put together the um, what this book might look like, you know, sample chapters and stuff like that, and did a lot of the research up front before I ever sold the book. And so for me, it's been a real exploration of what does substance abuse is preventable, that quote you can hear so much from public health officials, what does preventable mean? What does it mean for me as a parent? What does it mean for me as a teacher? What does it mean for me as someone who's now working in recovery? I'm a prevention and recovery coach at at a place called Santa at Stowe, a recovery, uh, detox and recovery facility in Stowe, Vermont. So what what does that prevention term mean and how do I help teach other parents and educators and mentors about prevention um, and the big picture of prevention in this country. Yeah, prevention is the key in anything. It's it's so much easier to deal with it on the front end than the back end, which you point out so well in the book. Um, one of the things I really enjoy about your writing and your books is the personal uh, sort of stories and, and how you humanize yourself and talk about your own journey. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit more about you, how you came to this place for yourself mm-hmm. and today sort of focus in on how people can get to this place themselves. How do they get to the point where they can recognize it? What is it? And what do you do about it? Um, so that's sort of where I want to, I want to pick up where we left off. So, uh, I guess maybe start with what was your decision point and on this journey and when did you decide I'm just going to do this and, um, and then how do you, Talk to your children about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough road, and it looks so different for so many different people. Um, I knew, I probably knew for about a decade, maybe a little bit less, that I had a problem with alcohol. I knew I was looking forward to it too much. I knew it was creeping up on me. I knew the amounts were getting bigger and bigger. I knew I was uh, lying more. I knew I was hiding things more. Um, I was talking to some of the clients um, that I work with at Santa about, you know, just sort of laughing over all of the the permuta- all of the different things we have to do in order to hide the alcohol and lie about the alcohol and hide it and put it in weird places and all the weird rituals we come up with to sort of protect our right to drink. And so that went on with me for a long time. And, you know, there were points at which I knew I needed help, but I wasn't, I just wasn't ready to commit. And it can be really difficult to predict when someone's going to be ready to commit to get getting better. Um, and it can take multiple tries for many, many people. But for me, uh, it was, you know, my last night of drinking, I, I blacked out at my mother's birthday party, and um, I don't remember what happened. Blacking out means not that I've lost the uh, the memories of that evening, but that my brain was never able to actually form memories, which for me is very, well, for many people, hmm. is very scary. You're, it's yeah. not that you can't remember it or that you can, if you try really hard, you can bring those memories back. It was that your brain never actually recorded any memories from that night, and and that's very frightening. Um, But the next morning, my dad um, 
my dad was really brave, and he came in and he confronted me, and he's in a very loving way, and said, "I love you so much, and and I know what an alcoholic looks like, and you are an alcoholic." And at that point, I was ready, you know, to hear it and to do something about it. But that time is, you know, it really depends for people when, how, and when that time happens. They say that success is not a strength in recovery. Um... Can you talk about what that means? And you were a very successful person at this point, family, career, um, and what the toll is of living the way you were living. Yeah, I was working two full-time jobs at that point, at the height of right before I got uh, sober. I was I was not only working as a full-time writer, I was also working as a very full-time teacher, and the pressure of that and the pressure of, you know, getting less and less sleep because people tend to think of alcohol as something that helps with sleep, but actually the opposite is true. It may help you get to sleep because you can sort of pass out from right. from drinking, but at the same time it actually interrupts um, your sleep cycles and makes it so that you sleep less. So I was getting less sleep and drinking more to contend with that and having more anxiety to contend with, you know, the fact that things were getting more and more dire. Um, and I'm just used to being one of those people who can do it all. You know, I I love my I loved my job. I love being a writer. I love being a teacher, and I prided myself on getting it all done and doing it all really really well all the time. But the amount of drinking I was having to do at that point was edging out my ability to do everything well. And I had just sold my first book, The Gift of Failure, and realized it was it became very clear to everybody. I think that. Um, alcohol was the, you know, something was going to have to give, um, and, you know, it made sense that it was the alcohol because nothing else really, I didn't have room for anything else to give. So the alcohol was taking up too much mental space and certainly too much time um, from my life to allow for all of, for me to continue to be doing all of these things well. Yeah, so that was really um, I guess, how do you get to the point where you, you said committed um, yeah, how it's, you know, there's different bottoms for different people. People talk about a high bottom, a low bottom. Um, yours was, seems pretty high and you just had enough suffering or like it would just became too big for you. Yeah. I think the term high bottoms and low bottoms really are, don't do us a disservice because from my perspective, I hadn't, you know, when I go to recovery meetings, I hear about people who have lost everything, who've right. lost their families, who've burned down their houses, people who've lost everything and hurt people around them and maybe even killed people. And so from my perspective, it would be really tempting to say, well, I'm not as bad as those people. Right. So I think having having respect for the fact that everyone's bottom, so to speak, looks different. And for me, I was just exhausted. I had nothing left um, to give to this addiction. I, um, I, was, I was just exhausted. It is so tiring to juggle all of the parts of my life and to keep the secrets and to pretend that I remember conversations that I didn't, recom- that I didn't remember because I was in a blackout and my kids were getting older and starting to get to a point where they could really understand what was happening. So for me, it just came down to exhaustion. And the way I discuss this when I talk to people about recovery is it's like a puzzle with 100 pieces, and you can't get to piece 100 without pieces 1 through 99. And for me, pieces 1 through 99 were close calls, people saying, well, I think you've had enough, or my husband saying, you know, I think this is 
creeping up and becoming a problem. And I wasn't ready with any of those other pieces. But those pieces had to be there for piece 100 to fall into place. And so while, you know, I tend to talk a lot about prevention, and I can't ever guarantee that any kid is not going to go on to have substance use disorder, but prevention actually plays a dual purpose with these pieces of the puzzle. They can act as early, low-number pieces of the puzzle so that we can get kids, if they do have a problem eventually, to a place where they're ready to say, you know, I've had enough. And, you know, what's interesting is when people reach out to me when I think maybe they have had enough, and I had one person actually text me for three years in a row just I'd like to have a conversation, and then they disappear. And then I'd like to have a conversation, and then they disappear. But um, but then three years in, suddenly say, I I think I've I think I've had enough. And you know that you really have to respect and be patient with that process sometimes. People, at least from my at least from the perspective of you know, the person with the problem, it can be awfully difficult to be, to have some patience with it when you're watching someone you love really struggle. You just want them to, you just want them to get, to be ready. And it's really hard for someone to be ready before they're ready. But, and we can rush that along a little bit by talking about it more. So the whole point here is the more we talk about it, I think the easier it becomes to talk about it and the more likely we are to get someone to the point where um, they're ready for help. All right, if you're just joining us, my guest is New York Times bestselling author Jessica Leahy. Uh, And no, this is not a repeat. Uh, This is a live program. Jessica has returned to continue our conversation about her newest book, The Addiction Inoculation. Uh, This book, for anybody who's not familiar with it, is really a a manual, uh, go-to book for how to protect your children um, from developing addiction, the prevention end, the front end. So... Uh, we're hoping today that you'll join in on the conversation and not wait till the end of the hour when we usually get a bunch of phone calls and emails and I don't have time to get them all on. So let's call in early if you have a question or a comment you'd like to share on today's topic. Our Anchorage phone number is 550-8433. If you're outside of Anchorage, our, our toll-free number is one 888 553 And you can email your questions to line one at Alaska Public. Dot org. All right, uh, Jessica, you mentioned your children, and um, mm-hmm. you seem you're clearly okay talking about your personal life um, yep. on the air because it's <laughs> it's uh, I don't know imperative. I mean, it's just part of your story and what you do for a living. So, but your kids, um, you said they were getting older and starting to figure out something was not right. And uh, was that part of the the motivation there? You couldn't keep it from them anymore? Yeah, we lived in a really, really small house. And uh, they also had a grandparent who was struggling with substance abuse. And it was becoming, we were getting to a place where, you know, they were having to deal with the ramifications of us saying, no, you can't go, you know, having to keep the children from the grandparent when that grandparent was really drinking too much. So, it was becoming something that we were talking about more and more often, and and it was becoming difficult for me to talk about their grandparent with substance abuse issue while also struggling with my own. And we also have had friends that have struggled with substance abuse. We've had a friend who went to prison, and they're very clear with about what that was all about. Right. Um, So, 
it, you know, it, it can be really easy for us to talk about other people's issues. And that was very, you know, very easy for me. And yet at the same time, it just got to the point where I had to talk about my own, my own issues. That was going to be really, really important. And talking to my kids about it, I think, you know, that was incredibly difficult. My kids are now 22 and 17, but I got sober when they were 9 and 15, 9 and 14. And, I, you know, I'm, I've always been a fan of, you know, honesty and transparency with kids with the gift of failure. There's a lot of talk in there about right. being honest about your own mistakes so that they can learn from them. So with our kids, it was very much a matter of, you know, I've just been doing the best I can, but I have this problem and I can't control my drinking and I need help for that. And I think any time we can model that behavior for our children, the I need help and it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to admit that you can't handle something by yourself, that's a strength. And so I want my kids to see that in us. So I wasn't worried about appearing weak to them more than anything else. I was just worried about losing their trust or feeling like they couldn't rely on me. Um, so from then on out, it became a matter of building time and building trust back with them. Yeah, your children. Um, how did they, I mean, did they know? Did they say, oh, mom, yeah, right, okay, thanks for telling us? Or, like, how does this con- just you sit down and have a family meeting? I mean, this whole time you're teaching and training and working with kids about all this stuff, and this has to add to your anxiety about your own behavior, right? Um how do you... It does, but at the same it does, but at the same time, they know. You know, we're also a family of, you know, let's do a lot of research and find out how to do this better. And their father and I are both, you know, academics, and and uh, I think they're also used to having conversations about a lot of things that um, I'm going to be writing about, and I tend to process my life, my experiences through writing first on a very personal level, with as Stephen King says, the, with the door closed. Right. writing that's for me. And then eventually, once I've processed that with the door open and with an eye to the research on how to do better. So, yeah, this is pretty much a, a dinnertime conversation. I actually wrote about it um, anonymously. Um, the Huffington Post allowed me to write about it anonymously, which is a difficult thing to be able to do unless you do wow. it on blog. So I'm grateful to them for that. And then I included part of that essay in my book because, you know, at first in the first weeks, uh, you know, I wasn't ready to use my real name. And I was really worried about my, the student, the parents of my students finding right. it because yeah. I'm a teacher. I mean, you know, then they're going to think what, that I'm, even though I wasn't drinking during the day at school, you know, the implications are, you know, anything could be going on. They don't know. And, and that was a very scary time for me. And one of the reasons that the very first recovery meeting I ever went to was far away from my house because I didn't want to run into anyone I knew. Uh, because my brain couldn't handle the math there that if someone I knew was at that meeting, that person probably also had a reason to be there. So right, you know, they yeah, they weren't there just observing and um... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And there are the nice thing is in recovery um, in 12 step meetings, there are closed meetings and open meetings. So if I wanted to be really careful about it, all I had to do was go to a meeting that was indicated as a C or closed meeting. And I would have avoided any possibility that a person would be there just to I don't know who goes to a meeting just to check it out. I don't know. But, you know, that was something I was concerned about at the time. Yeah, so you're a relatively famous person and you have a reputation and uh, the fear that really sounds like followed you 
as you kind of came out and and owned mm-hmm. this um what has been your experience of how did all of those fears come to play out or did they at all they they didn't the response has been overwhelmingly unbelievably positive supportive um as I've opened up to larger and larger circles, first um, first by writing about it anonymously, obviously, um, but having to admit to those editors, people I work with, that you know I'm I, I'm an alcoholic. To my agent, that was challenging. Um, and as those circles got wider and wider, the support just increased. And I think it's really important to interject here that. As I am a white woman um, of, you know, I'm solid on my feet in terms of financial means. You know, I I have – I'm in a place of privilege where when I come out and say I'm an alcoholic, I get a lot of that's so noble of you, that's so strong of you, how wonderful that you're out there being an example. However, there are for a lot of people out there, um, especially people who are racial minorities, especially people in poverty – for, for someone like that to come out and admit to being an alcoholic, it's often seen as just another negative against them. And so I feel a duty in a lot of ways to be an example because I can. I am. I work for myself for the most part. Um, luckily, my editor and my agent have been incredibly um, supportive. But that's just not the case for a lot of people. So for me... It's something that I not only felt a personal obligation to do, but I also felt this sort of public obligation to do it so that I could support other people for whom admitting to this would be much more challenging than it was in my life. I have a spouse that's supportive. I have people around me that are supportive, and that's not the case for everyone. No, a lot of people risk losing their jobs. um, Absolutely. You know, and their families and more. It's a scary thing to take that step. and. Um, yeah, you have a white single. Uh, sorry, you have a, a, a single mother of color who wants to come out uh, publicly as an alcoholic. You, you know, that person runs the risk of you know child protective services coming in right. and all kinds of other losing a job. You know, I come out and say I'm an alcoholic, and people are like, "Yay, rah rah! How strong are you?" So I think it's going to be really important for people who can be public about their. Um, substance use disorder to be public about their substance use disorder to pave the way for people for whom it is more difficult to be um, public about those sorts of things. Yeah, and it seems to be happening more and more. Um, Athletes and and entertainers, I know some of that um, has to be taken with a grain of salt. They go to, you know, Mm -hmm. Clapton's rehab once a year um, to clean (laughs) out. But uh, a lot of people are taking it really seriously and coming out and talking about it differently and sort of breaking down some of that stigma. It's also been great in the past couple of years. um, There are a few new books that have come out. Um, famously, um, a book by Holly Whitaker called Quit Like a Woman that um, Chrissy Teigen, who was, you know, massive on Twitter, put a picture of this book up and said, you know, I'm going to stop drinking because my doctor gave me this book. Um, The nice thing about, you know, there are parts of Holly Whitaker's book I really disagree with, but the parts I do disagree or I do agree with are the impulse to examine our own drinking, whether or not we may rise to the level of an alcoholic. I think if people are questioning whether or not drinking is a problem for them, we shouldn't have to then take a quiz, you know, are you an alcoholic quiz and rise to the level of alcoholic to decide whether or not something may be unhealthy for us. Alcohol is overwhelmingly 
unhealthy for the human body, but, you know, it's become such a normal part of our society that we tend, and our culture, that we tend not to think about it that way. But a lot of women um, are saying, to, especially women, and I mention women because so many of these books have been, the recent popular ones have been about women and drinking, um, are starting to say, you know what, I may not be a full-blown alcoholic, but this just doesn't feel good to me, right. so I'm going to reassess right. my own my own use. And I think that's a really great way to think about this. If you're questioning it, then maybe it is something you want to reassess, and who cares whether or not, you know, you, you label yourself an alcoholic. Just looking at it uh, intentionally and mindfully, um, mm-hmm. yeah, and addressing it honestly, that's a uh, a good step to take. So we'll get into more of uh, how to recognize um, addiction in a little bit, but we're at our 20-minute break. So if you're just joining us, my guest is New York Times bestselling author Jessica Leahy. This is not a repeat show. Uh, She has returned to continue our discussion about her newest book, The Addiction Inoculation. After this short break, uh, we do have a couple of calls that have lined up, so we'll return for some phone calls and more of our discussion about how we can help to protect our children from developing addiction problems as adults. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and this is Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. Line One, Your Health Connection comes to you from Alaska Public Media and is made possible with support from Providence Imaging Center with over 30 years of commitment to the community with a comprehensive patient-centered focus approach. Learn more at provimaging.com. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning in, my guest today is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure. She has, uh, Jessica Leahy has returned today to continue our discussion about her newest book, The Addiction Inoculation, which is a book about how to protect kids from developing addiction problems as teens. If you would like to join in on the conversation, you can email your questions or comments to line1 at alaskapublic.org. And I want to make sure I give out the right number. Apparently, we're getting some calls on another number. So our uh, toll-free number outside of Anchorage is 1-888-353-5752. That's... 888-353-5752, and our Anchorage number is 550-8433. So please give us a call. Um, We will go ahead and uh, go to the phones. We have a couple people that have been waiting for a bit. So, uh, Stu, you're in Shirt Lake. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Here's uh, an observation I made that might have some value to helping people understand addiction. Um, take some maple syrup and leave it in a bowl, and but first observe some uh, bees' normal behavior, and see what happens. Um, they find it, 
they land. Instead of loading their pouches to take back to the nest, they start licking it, and that's all they do. And then they start getting numbers, and uh, next thing you know, you got a bunch of bees around maple syrup. They're licking it. Nobody's going back to the nest. And after a while, they're not even aware of you, and they're not paying attention. They're putting themselves at risk. And uh, it's probably a good observation uh, for someone dealing with addiction to see what happens to the poor bees when they get some maple syrup. Well, thanks, Stu. That's a, uh, that is a good way to look at it. Jessica, can you talk about addiction and what, in, in reference to, you know, Stu's comment, um, what it feels yeah. like, yeah, what it is? Yeah, there's actually what's so interesting to me when you look at sort of the reasons that people use, and especially for me, um, I'm thinking all the time about why kids use. And one of the things that we find is that kids tend to resort to or start using initiating a drug and, drugs and alcohol when they're dealing with um, stuff, either psychic pain, something that either trauma that happened to them when they were younger or something that just feels wrong. You hear a lot of things like, I just didn't fit in. I felt like I didn't have the instructions. And it allows them to just numb to either their feelings or to their environment enough to be a little braver, to feel like they deserve to be around and alive and present in this world. And what's so interesting to me about that is that it, for some kids, when they first start using it, helps them feel brave enough to engage in the world. And yet what it's really doing is making them um, not only oblivious sometimes to their surroundings, but it's creating a situation in which it's dulling um, on a temporary basis, you know, their environment and the um, the feelings, that, the bad feelings that they're trying to have, the emotions that they're trying to, to uh, eradicate, and yet they're never actually dealing with those emotions. So it allows them to sort of zone out, um, you know, unhook from the world in a way that makes it so that they never actually have to deal with the stuff that's around them. And kids actually have a very, a slightly different reaction than adults do when alcohol, for example, gets into their brains. Alcohol in kids acts differently. Um, Kids are less likely to understand just how drunk they are, which makes them more likely to engage in risky behaviors like driving a car when they're drunk because they just don't feel as drunk as an adult with the same amount of alcohol in their system would. They're also less likely to have the negative, to feel the negative consequences like hangovers and just feeling really crappy the next morning. So they don't get enough of the sort of negative feedback about drinking um, that an adult might. So, you know, I see these kids that start using simply because they want to detach a little bit from the world and from their emotions, and it puts them in a place where they're sort of going through some of their teenage years without really connecting with their their environment and with the risks that are around them. And it makes them vulnerable to a lot of um, added risks on top of the ones that they're already facing. So it's, it's a really weird place because, you know, some kids are using it because they want to engage more with the world but don't feel like they can, and yet using the alcohol actually causes them over the long term to detach from, from their world. Yeah, they become more and more isolated um, and yeah. in their own hit head, and that's that's where addiction thrives is in isolation. Um, 
Yeah, and when you absolutely, and actually, when there's um, there are some people who say, uh, well, actually, there are a bunch of studies that show that there are two different kinds of. If you look at the way people drink, people who are drinking in order to isolate more, people who drink when they're alone, people who are drinking to avoid feelings and to avoid um, dealing with experiences that they've had, those people are a lot more worrisome in terms of their risk of having substance use disorder over the long term. People who are drinking, you know, to heighten happy experiences to sort of because you already feel good, you're going to, you know, celebrate with friends. That kind of social drinking, um, are those people are a little bit less likely to have uh, to encounter or to have issues with substance use disorder over, their, over the long term. So I would be particularly cognizant of people, of keeping an eye on people who are drinking in order to detach and isolate and get themselves sort of separated from the world and to deal with anxiety and, uh, and bad feelings than people who are drinking in order to sort of heighten good feelings. Right. Uh, those that are numbing out um, versus mm-hmm. doing it to participate even more. Um, that's a really good point. So uh, we have uh, Alex has been on hold for a while out in the valley. Uh, you're on line one. Go ahead, Alex. Hey, good morning. Um, so firstly, it's an honor to be on this show. Um, so as an active addict and um, a former recovery minister myself, um, I wanted to break down some stigma firstly. Um, a lot of people think that an addict is in love with a drug. And what it really is is that we suffer from a lack of love for ourselves. Um, and I know for a fact what it is is that you know, uh, a lot of people that usually become addicts are subjugated to traumatic events as they're growing up. Um, and their childhood may have been rough or their adult life may be rough. Um, and so we compartmentalize that into a numbing agent, which, uh, as you said, uh, yeah, we try and, you know, hold back our emotions and not feel it. But unfortunately, the biggest problem with that is that we end up getting a backlog of emotions pile up like bottlenecks in a pipe and uh when we come down off that high and you know we start jonesing again we end up getting that bottleneck broken free and a lot of it just comes back in an overwhelming force which is what usually causes that it commit suicide or suffer more um i know that as it stands in my life um i've you know chosen to figure there's a hard road and there's, there's an even harder road and the harder road is you know having to admit firstly out loud that i'm an acid user um and yeah a lot of it was from depression um you know what was COVID going on i ended up becoming homeless again um and you know i'm left alone in the state no family no friends and i'm left to my own device and when i go to try and follow my emotions um, I end up finding out more often than not that it's, it's better for me to just recognize that I have a skill set that I can use, whether that be an artistic value of some sort, um, you know, just rock stacking or, or, you know, I find some sort of hobby to put myself into, like, um, as one of the last uh, epically, legendarily rare dying breeds of blue harmonic musicians, um, I choose to play out my feelings with the blue card. Um, I hate to I hate time, to interrupt you, Alex, but you got a pretty bad connection, and we're not we're not getting it through. We got kind of the gist of it, and thank you for your comments, and thank you so much for 
talking about your personal story there a little bit and and how you're coping uh, with addiction. So um, I appreciate the call. He actually has some lovely, lovely points. Yeah. Talked a little bit about um, experiences that kids have making them more likely to resort to drugs and alcohol, and that's absolutely true. The Centers for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente did a massive study a bunch of years ago um, looking at childhood experiences and their impact on uh, on, uh, physical and mental health over a lifetime. It turns out that you can take the CDC's um, uh, ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences, quiz and find out what your number is. It's a number of 1 through 10. The higher your number, the more likely you are to have substance use disorder during your lifetime, as well as lots of other things, strokes and heart attacks and mental health issues. So the things that we experience as kids and adverse childhood experiences could be things like, you know, um, uh, violence in the home or addiction in the home or divorce and separation. There are a lot, there's a, a list there that you can check out. And the, the more of those you've experienced, the higher your likelihood of having substance use disorder during your lifetime. And the other thing that he mentioned that was really, really smart and really on topic, on point, is when you have something that occupies you and that you can feel um, proficient and competent at, that's called having a feeling of self-efficacy, knowing that if you take action in your life that you can make things happen, that you can make decisions and change the circumstances of your life and be effective in things. That feeling of self-efficacy is one of the biggest protections we can give kids. Kids who have feelings of self-efficacy are a lot less likely to have all kinds of physical and mental health disorders. So he is right on with his, uh, his statements about his own life and sort of what we can do in order to help other people feel like they have ways to, to feel like they're in some control and, in some, um, and having successes in their lives. Yeah, you mentioned self-efficacy, uh, Bessel van der Kolk calls it uh when he talks about trauma work he talks about a sense of agency right Mm -hmm. our our ability to to protect ourselves and to find a solution to a problem and create safety for ourselves so i think that's the same idea there that sense of yeah it's it's also a great week to be talking about self-efficacy because um uh the person who actually sort of came up with the whole idea of self-efficacy albert bandura he died just last week and the legacy of his work is just massive in terms of understanding what's what's really protective and a sense of self-efficacy feeling like we have um, the ability to make our lives better and to make the world a better place that's uh, just a massive protective factor for kids all right can can you talk briefly about we and we didn't i don't think we really touched on this in the first one i kind of uh, went back and listened to it as I was preparing for this show, but can you talk about the impact of addiction on children as they're growing up in a home with active addiction? Yeah, this is a really wonderful, interesting topic, mainly because, of course, number one, it is an adverse childhood experience to have a person who is suffering from substance use disorder within the home. It just is. So not only because it's, um, you know, it can lead to uh, alcohol and drugs can lead to all kinds of other behaviors like um, abuse, violence, all that kind of stuff, crime. Um, you know, in some, according to some surveys, you know, drugs and alcohol are 80% of the picture when it comes to uh, cr- uh, committing crimes. Right. So there's all of these, you know, th- that can lead to other adverse childhood experiences like having an incarcerated parent, for example. But on the other hand, there's also this thing called epigenetics. And 
when we talk about genetics and substance use disorder, it looks like just having people in your family that also suffered from substance use disorder, that risk picture is about 50%, 50 to 60% of the risk. So my kids were born with 50 to 60% higher risk for substance use disorder than someone who didn't have any parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles who, were, who, had, who uh, dealt with substance use disorder. So they're front-loaded for it. Right. So, you know, from my perspective, this creates a sense of urgency. I don't have any, I don't have the time to, or the leeway to pretend like this isn't an issue. It's very much an issue. I can't ignore it. But on top of that, epigenetics are sort of a combination of, of environment and genetics. The things we experience as children can cause some of our genes to either turn off or turn on, to cause them to it's not that we're changing our genetics, it's that we're changing the way our genes respond to our environment, and that can cause certain hormones to be released. And so epigenetics is sort of, if you think about it, it's like when, um, when the stuff in our environment impacts um, the way our genes actually operate. And so there are a lot of ways that having someone who's suffering from substance use disorder in the family can affect kids. And... Um, you know, not just obviously from the sense that it increases their own risk. It's also a really traumatic experience to have someone in your family who was raised, uh, someone in your family who was addicted. And I was raised by someone who was addicted to drugs and alcohol. So, um, and it's very painful. And, you know, this book is one way of making that experience have some worth for other people. And so this has been a really healing experience for me writing this book. Yeah, and it's such a, a gift to give to your kids to do it while they they were still at home, right? I mean, yeah, my yeah, and my kids and my nieces. By the way, I have two nieces. For the for these four kids, it, this is a conversation that comes up a lot. Um, you know, we talk about our risk for substance. My sister managed to dodge this bullet. She's very lucky. She does not have an issue with substances. Mm-hmm. But you know, my nieces are still at heightened risk, and so having this conversation on a regular basis um, and talking about risk, talking about what it feels like when um, use becomes abuse, talking about the fact that the younger a kid is, they're higher their risk of having substance use. The younger a kid is when they first try drugs and alcohol, the higher their lifelong risk of having a substance use disorder and the impact on the adolescent brain. Because we're not talking about an adult brain here. We're talking about an adolescent brain, which is acutely, exquisitely sensitive to the environment um, because of the fact that it's undergoing such massive reconstruction and change. So it's, these are conversations we have a lot, and it's really important to have them from a very young age. Yeah, the adolescent brain is uh, extra susceptible to addiction. It is like almost ripe for it. It is a yeah a field in which it can grow. Um, the well, brains it's not are just, just ripe for it. It, it. it craves novelty, which yeah. is perfectly normal part of adolescence, right? Because adolescence is a time when we're supposed to be preparing kids to go out in the big world and be able to fend for themselves. And in order to do that, they need new experiences to practice on. And novel novel experiences, unfortunately, can also carry risk with them. So it's our job as adults to guide kids towards um, risk, but that's positive risk, like, you know, going out for a new sport, trying out for a new thing, getting them a little bit outside their comfort zone, that qualifies as a risk, risky, novel experience that can sort of feed some of that need for in the adolescent brain for risk and novelty. Curiosity and exploration, um, yep. and it can be used in either for good or for 
really challenging stuff as well. So um, those are good points. If you're just joining us, my guest today is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure. Today we are talking about her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, which is a must-read for anyone interested in protecting children from developing substance abuse problems. After this short break, we will return for more of our conversation with Jessica Leahy. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you're listening to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is now authorized in the U.S. for anyone 12 years or older. Getting your child immunized with this free, safe, and effective vaccine is a great way to get them safely back to sports, get-togethers, and other fun summer activities. Learn more about COVID-19 vaccines and schedule appointments at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the State of Alaska COVID-19 Vaccine Helpline at one 833 This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. Welcome back. You are listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us, my guest today is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, Jessica Leahy. She has returned this week uh, after uh, taking a week off, but uh, she came back to to talk more about the addiction inoculation, her newest book. If you would like to join in the conversation, please go ahead and email us or give us a call over the next, uh, I'd say, 10 minutes because um, we are running out of time rapidly. Our email is line1 at alaskapublic.org. You can call us in Anchorage at 550 and you can reach us toll-free outside of Anchorage at 1-888-353-5752. All right. Uh, I, do, I have a caller question, but and I don't really quite understand it, um, but maybe we can answer part of it. So it says, please talk uh, a spouse about spouse support relating to addiction and what to do when a spouse says you're on your own. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but how do, if I can just um, make a question out of it, uh, how should a spouse, like if, if somebody's concerned about their partner and substance abuse, um, how do they go about bringing that up or, or introducing that topic? It's not something that people generally want to hear. Well, it's actually the question could be one of two things, and it's a question I get quite a bit. Number one, if your spouse is not on board with you with prevention measures. So, for example, we have we do know that parents that give a consistent um, message of a consistent and clear message of no, not until it's legal for you, which, by the way, I don't care as much about the legality as I do about brain development, and 21 to 25 is around when the brain is done developing. But parents who have a consistent and clear message of no, no drugs or alcohol until it is legal for you tend to raise kids who have a far lower level, uh, far lower incidence of substance use disorder over their lifetime. When you have a parent who wants to, you know, let kid have sips or say something like, oh, well, they're going to drink anyway, so I'd rather they do it at home, so we'll get a keg and they can have it 
the basement. I'll take everyone's keys. That, that sort of mixed messaging is not helping. Um, having one consistent parent is great. Having two consistent parents is even better. Um, however, I think the question could, probably means what do you do when you're worried about your own substance use and you do not have a supportive partner? And I'm another have, great question. Yeah. Right. And I have to cop to the fact that I am very, very fortunate. My husband, um, you know, from the time that I admitted to my issues, my and my husband does not have a problem with drugs and alcohol. Um, he uh, we do not keep open containers in our house anymore. He'll buy singles, have one with dinner and then pour out the rest. So that's just, you know, and that's also great modeling for my kids. My kids get to see a little bit of what it looks like when um, a partner is supportive of their partner's needs. And so, you know, I'm very, very grateful to my family for that. I have a lot of support. When you don't have support from a spouse um, or a partner, it's going to be so much more difficult for you to get the support you need. So you're going to have to shore up your allies in other places. And whether that means within the recovery community, you know, going to 12-step meetings, all of a sudden, and without fail, this tends to be the case, you know, you go to a recovery meeting and all of a sudden you have all these people trying to press their phone numbers into your hand because people who are new to recovery need a lot of support. Right. Take advantage right. of as much support as possible. Try to have as many sober friends as possible who are willing to talk about it. Um, going to something like an IOP or outpatient program, um, going into a recovery program can be really, really helpful. But if you do not have a supportive spouse, it is going to be a harder road. And so find as many other supportive resources that you can find um, outside of your relationship because that's, that, those people are going to be the community that will save you. All right. So it sounds like a community of people is critical um, Absolutely. And that's what's been so hard for people during COVID. You know, 12-step yeah. meetings have gone virtual. And while that's great, and actually at the beginning of the pandemic, attendance went way up because it was even easier to go to a meeting and not have to, like, show up, show up. Um, but over the long haul, you know, it's really been the the actual presence of people right there who can show up for you in a very physical and very sort of real emotional way that are the people that save us. And so from my perspective, yes, I have my regular recovery meetings, but I also have a group of friends, about five of us, who just get together for walks. And when one of our small group was having some problems, we really pulled together for her and made sure she had more support than, than you know, she might need normally just because we could feel she was in a precarious place. So having those friends and, and hopefully friends and relatives around you that can support you is um, reach out to people who are already in recovery because those people can be really powerful supports. And there's a, a lot of them around in the community that you don't know about. Um, it's amazing the minute you start talking about it. <laughs> right. They seem to just crawl out from the woodwork. And, you know, I was in, I was speaking in rural Tennessee uh, day before yesterday in a place where I did not expect for there to be many recovery meetings, and I like to attend other people's meetings when, I, when I'm out of town. I've, I could not believe how many meetings there were. There were like 10 a day to choose from in this one county. So you can Google, um, you know, recovery meetings in my area, and you'll, you may find out that there are some, you know, nearby or do what I did and go a little bit further away from your house um, and, you know, go to your first meeting if that makes you feel safer. But find people in recovery to be your support system. Absolutely. Um, so 
not a question. This is a, an email I got. Not a question, but input. Uh, this who's the person writing this question wants input on parenting with a toddler, COVID, increased mommy, wine time, mm-hmm. and phone social media addiction. Uh, setting right. good examples for kids. What's how's COVID? impacted mommy wine time? That is a great, great question. A lot of us are feeling a lot of stress. A lot of us are feeling like we need to let it out in various ways and increase wine consumption. We know for a fact that um, adults have been drinking a lot more during COVID. We know that. We also know that 67% of parents in the U.S. um, of this one survey anyway, uh, admitted that they let their kids sip during um, of their own alcoholic beverages during COVID. Um, I don't know how, you know, there was no day on how old those kids were. But yes, there's been more drinking during COVID. And so, uh, and uh, in states where it's legal, more marijuana use as well. And so one of the things that I would like to make very clear is I am never going to tell you that you can't drink in front of your kids or you as an adult can't drink. I am going to beg you to look really carefully, to listen really carefully to your messaging about why you're drinking. If you're saying things like, oh my gosh, I really need this drink at the end of the day, or I really need this glass of wine to unwind. Just give me some space so I can have my glass of wine. If we're talking about it as if it is medicine, as if it is treating our emotional distress, then our kids are going to hear that and understand drugs and alcohol as some way to medicate our emotional stress. And But if we talk about it in a way that's healthier, in a way that's, you know, we're having a glass of wine with dinner and it's a way to sort of come together, uh, you know, with your, your spouse and have a glass of wine together, that can be different from I need this in order to cope with my emotions. Um, so think really hard about how you're conveying your need, your want, whatever it is for um, drugs and alcohol in front of your kids. All right, we have uh, another phone call. Carl in Homer, you're on line one with Jessica Leahy. Go ahead. Well, thanks for taking my call. It was um, fun to hear um, Jessica talk about how the brain develops um, so much more in the adolescent stage. And being a young kid myself at one time, I remember uh, my outlet was being addicted to sports, and I was able to find soccer as a way to just constantly develop my brain and my body in new levels. And it's a game that you can practice and play by yourself. It's very affordable. And um, my goal is to try and get kids more addicted to healthy activities through the international game of soccer. And one of the things I want to talk about here in Alaska, we're the only state that doesn't have high-level or college soccer. And there's so many kids that, we label them as hyperactive or attention deficit or bipolar when what they really need to do is just get out there and be able to run free, be creative, express their physiology, develop their mental capacity through the simple yet complex game of soccer. I've seen it firsthand being a foster dad with a very problematic kid that uh, wanted to play and changed his behavior greatly so that he could be socially accepted and learn what sportsmanship and what is not sportsmanship. But these kids, they they need to release. He was a hyperactive native kicking champion. And um, thank God that, you know, soccer is a game where he wanted to excel. He wanted to run his brains out. And uh, I think is sometimes the solution. Now with Kobe, it's a little bit harder to uh, manage the joint play or group play, so to speak, but 
we need more uh, futsal and soccer and let these kids that, you know, we want to prescribe drugs to, you know, get their physical release on the soccer pitch and social release and social friendship building. And, all right. Uh, it's unlimited. I've played soccer all around the world, and it's used globally to help kids develop what is sportsmanship and what is what is fair play, what is foul play. So Thank you, Carl. Um, we are running out of time here, but uh, Jessica, can you speak briefly to what Carl's talking about when that That's connection? Fantastic, fantastic point from Carl. It is absolutely true that kids who are involved in activities actually all the way through college have lower rates of substance use disorder um, and you know I'm all for uh, getting kids out and getting more active and all of that stuff is really really helpful teamwork is really helpful I also just feel the need the need to point out a little side note that um, sports can have a really perfect uh, protective uh, protective effect against substance use disorder yeah Certain sports, however, you are going to want to keep a, a, an eye on your kids because certain sports, and they're the top four, are wrestling, soccer, hockey, and football. Those are the top four sports for substance use. Those have the highest rates of substance use. But even among those sports that have the high rates of substance use, what we know is that um, the team looks to the captain and the coach in order to uh, know what the norms are for their behavior. So we have a really good idea of how to help protect kids, even involved in those four high-risk sports um, from making uh, lacrosse is in there, also yeah. wrestling is in there, uh, to help protect those kids against uh, the lure of substance use within those sports because they're heavily marketed too within those sports by the alcohol companies as well. Yeah, those are great points. There can be, I mean, whatever the culture is on your team and the right. coaches and, and the, yeah, who are the leaders on that team because a lot of teams can get into that party sort of, mode in high school um and it can be dangerous a lot of high-risk behavior yeah, that team ca team captains frat presidents people like that they have a massive influence on the culture of and the amount of uh drinking that happens under their watch okay real briefly um what about somebody whose spouse is uh abusing substances and causing lots of problems and how, how do they get that person on board um we only got a few, you know, maybe 30 seconds. But yeah, I mean, I mean, how do you deal from with the very that? Beginning, yeah, talking, 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 making sure that it's you're making it clear, especially if you have children, that the needs of the children are going to be paramount. That if that children, um, what that spouse is doing by drinking in front of the kids and being an alcoholic parent is that they're putting their kids not only at physical risk, but of lifelong risk of having substance use disorder themselves. And from my perspective, the one thing I knew and the one thing that got me headed towards recovery was that I knew for a fact, because he told me, that my husband would divorce me before he would allow my children to be um, raised, you know, long-term in a house with an alcoholic, so with someone who was actively drinking. And I knew he was serious about that, and I probably would have done the same thing. So understanding that the kids have to come first when it comes to the behavior of the parents. So that was a powerful message that he would support you in recovery, but he was not going yep. to put the kids at risk. Nope. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, for your time today. It's always a pleasure, um, and I appreciate you coming back on with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right. Um, I don't do, do it too often, but uh, I would encourage everybody to read this book. 
Um, I think it's an important book for for all parents and parents who are struggling with their own addiction or their own questions. Um, It's a really good read. My thanks to Line One producer Ammon Swanson and to our audio engineer Tobin Shelby. Shelby. And big thanks to all of us, uh, all you listeners. I'm Prentice Pemberton. Have a great day. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.